Hello, I'm sitting in the wood on the hill above our house here in rural Lethley in West Wales on a, a, a lovely autumn morning. We just had a load of rain and now the sun's out. So you'll hear the drips from the, the trees and the birds coming back to life and the drips hitting my, my script. Oh no. Uh, I'm David Hedges and I'm managing the Homegrown Homes Project for Wood Knowledge Wales. It's a study of the timber construction supply chain. It's led by Powys Council and it's funded through the Rural Development Programme and being delivered in partnership with Cardiff Met, Coyd Cymru and BM Trada. Now, ordinarily Wood Knowledge Wales would have held its annual Woodbill Conference this summer, but 2020 has turned out to be anything but ordinary. So, instead of a, a conference themed around the Homegrown Homes project, we're running a series of webinars and podcasts which all have a focus on a particular aspect of the project. The podcasts are conversations between two people like me, both based at home, with an interest in the subject matter and a willingness to share their thoughts on the past, present and future. We made our recordings over the summer and sometimes the technology imposed limitations on us which you'll hear as you listen. I'm grateful to all of our conversationalists for giving up their time to talk and for being open and honest. I hope you find them interesting and thought-provoking and if you want to find out more about the Homegrown Homes project have a look at the Wood Knowledge Wales website and follow the links to the various project pages. Right, I'm going back indoors now to do a bit more editing and to record an introduction to each podcast. This podcast is a conversation between two architects. Fionn Stevenson is Professor of Sustainable Design in the School of Architecture at the University of Sheffield. And Rob Wheaton is Senior Associate Architect in Stride Treglown. They're both passionate about sustainability and the need to respond to the climate emergency. The conversation was focused on the future of housing and it ranged across the challenges we face in designing and building, the standards we should be aiming at, building performance, education and more. I guess we only scratched the surface, but amidst all the seriousness of the topic, this was fun. For those listeners interested in the subject of building performance evaluation, Wood Knowledge Wales, through the Homegrown Homes project, is launching guidance on the topic in the next few months. Keep an eye on our website for details. The conversation started with first Fionn and then Rob describing how they got to where they are today. I'm a qualified chartered architect and I'm passionate about housing. And I guess I became particularly interested in the performance of housing in reality after some of my own retrofit projects weren't behaving in the way I expected them to. People weren't using my my retrofits in the way that I designed them to be used. And I, I suddenly realised that there was a huge gap um, in knowledge in, in architecture about how buildings really perform. So I was in practice for eight years and I've been in academia for the last 25 years. I moved into academia in order to research the problem. I'm a professor of sustainable design. Um, I currently work for the University of Sheffield, but I've previously worked for six other universities in the UK. So I have a broad uh, experience of academia and practice. 
Um, I'm also the RIBA, one of the RIBA role models for diversity. So I have a, a good understanding of inclusivity. And that's me. Brilliant. Um, Rob? My name's Rob Wheaton. I'm a senior associate architect at Stride Trigalown. I guess my background has very much been the residential sector and housing. Um, I've been working in the housing sector on and off for the best part of ooh, 10, 12 years now. I guess 2019 for me was a bit of a wake up call. And I think it was for a lot of architects, actually. Um, I count myself um, sort of fortunate in that I work in Wales. Our office is based in Cardiff. And I think despite some limited resources, um, in a lot of ways, uh, Welsh government is ahead of the curve when it comes to sort of climate change. And we obviously have the World Being a Future Generations Act in signed in law as well. And this, this prompted me to train as a, a passive house consultant. So I qualified last year as a passive house consultant. And really, um, I've been very sort of fortunate in the opportunities that have sort of been presented to me through um, the innovative housing program in Wales. And uh, well, my, my humble learning curve really started at the beginning of last year with a innovative housing funded project in Swansea. And um, this has sort of brought me to where I am now. And I've also been very interested in the embodied carbon of our homes and really sort of taking on the duty or the realisation that we really do need to concentrate as architects on reducing the impact of um, the building industry as a whole in terms of carbon and, and being climate resilient for the future. Excellent. Okay, well, having established your credentials, if you like, thinking of the future, which is really what this podcast is is aiming to try and generate a conversation about, there is an expectation, isn't there, that the homes of the future are going to be different to the homes of today. But Fionn, do you think that's true? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to really develop a, a new product as well as a new process for delivering successful housing, um, not just in the, in the UK, but globally. We're currently in a climate crisis and we have 10 years to get things right um, before we literally destroy the planet and make it uninhabitable for humans. So you know, it just could not be more serious. So I think there are probably four key ways in which homes really need to change. And the first is we need to evolve from looking at um, homes as being something that needs to be efficient to looking much more towards whether homes are sufficient. And what I mean by that is at the moment we target energy efficiency, um, particularly in things like Passive House, uh, which is a great standard as far as it goes. But really for the future, it's about using our resources um, a lot more sparingly. Um, we currently use in the UK about three times the amount of resources that we actually have available to us, which means they're diminishing daily and they're running out and building materials are running out. And as Rob said, looking at the embodied energy and the embodied carbon in, in materials is crucial. But actually beyond that, we simply need to look at the availability of construction materials. I mean, currently, we know that sand is being illegally harvested from the bottom of oceans in the Pacific in order to build buildings, um, simply because there isn't enough sand around for concrete. 
so, you know, we have huge challenges with construction resources. So I think, you know, sufficiency is about looking at our homes and deciding how much do we really need to use in terms of resources in order to make our homes. So how sufficient can we be? And that means looking both at the size of homes and the amount of materials that we use as a totality. We tend to measure homes in terms of energy efficiency per square metre, but then we end up with 300 square metre homes for two people. And there are quite a few passive house homes like that around. Um, when, of course, you know, the norm for a, a two-person house is probably a, about a quarter of that size in the UK. So the first point is resources. The second point is resilience. At the moment, our homes are partly future-proofed for climate change. So we look at overheating, and Passive House looks at overheating. But very few standards, and certainly not the building regulations, really take account of the extremes that we're living through now. The weather bombs that get delivered regularly, where we get torrential rain, monsoon rain in the UK, which doesn't just cause flooding, it actually wrecks homes because of the overflowing of gutters and the backfilling of downpipes. Um, so we have to make our homes more resilient. And that means dealing with design for extremes, not just extreme heat. We also get extreme cold as well. We get extreme storms. So none of this yet is built in enough into our regulatory process. So that's the second thing. We need to deal with resources. Then we need to deal with resilience. The third thing we need to deal with once we've got safe homes that don't use too many resources is, of course, the people inside the homes. And where homes really need to change there is the changing demographic that we have in the UK. So our housing needs to be a lot, lot more adaptable. People need to be able to not just downsize, which is something we talk about a lot, but of course they also need to be able to upsize if they're growing a family. So we need homes that are, are much more adaptable in terms of the way in which we can use the spaces within them, but also, crucially, the way in which we can extend our homes as well, where possible. And this can happen not just for detached and semi-detached homes, it's actually also possible with terraced homes to lift them up. Um, so I think that's that's a, a third thing that we need to look at, is, is the adaptability of homes. And then the final thing I'd talk about that needs to really, really change is health and well-being in, in homes. So currently, we have hundreds and hundreds of unhealthy products being used in our homes. We have plastics that off-gas. We have finishes that off-gas. We have a chemical cocktail in our homes. We use a lot of artificially constructed materials that are glued together. So we need to really think about the um, health and well-being in our homes. And fundamentally, that's about improving indoor air quality, but not simply through ventilation, which passive house homes do very well, but much, much more fundamentally about the very materials that we specify in our homes. These should be, ideally, as natural as possible, because then you get a win-win. Not only is wood a wonderful natural material, but it can biodegrade straight back into the earth, providing it's not treated with unnecessary toxic chemicals. And above the ground, 
We know through experience over centuries and centuries, we have 400-year-old homes in Oxfordshire made of wood, older homes. We know it's possible to build with wood without it having to be toxic, at least above ground. So those would be my four points. Resilience, sufficiency, health and well-being, and just making sure that, you know, our homes are adaptable. Wow. You've thought about that, haven't you? I've spent 30 years thinking about this. Rob, tell me you've got a list as well. Wow, Um, that's pretty impressive. Um, I echo all of those comments. I think that that, that that's a great set of targets. Um, You can't just say I agree with Fionn, by the way. No, I can't. But I I um, I think where we are at the moment, so... So I think fundamentally we do need to address the uh, the performance gap. I mean, our homes at the moment are just not performing as they should, and and it's a real issue. I mean, you know, if you bought a car and it had a, a you know a stated full fuel consumption of you know fifty miles per gallon, only to find it delivered twenty miles per gallon, you take it back, and you would, you know, the average home is you know looking at various sort of studies, the average home is like to use 40% more energy than its EPC modelling would indicate. So I think the sooner we're judged on the outcomes and not the method, I think the best processes and solutions will naturally surface. So, you know, that might be alternatives to SAP like um, dynamic thermal modelling or passive house, you know, you know, whatever it is, I think um, we need to get to a point where our homes are performing as they should and that they're checked against it. We, you know, they're literally not checked at the moment. You can, you know, SAP can become a tick box exercise. And, you know, I guess there's a sense that I always think of sort of good heart's law in this, like when, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And, and building regulations set the minimum standard, but inevitably the, this becomes the target. So developers optimise their actions within that system. And SAP can be gamed. You, you know, you can add more PV at the expense of fabric. And, you know, given that our governments have now declared a climate emergency, surely they have a legal duty to maximise climate action and I think this means finding new ways of sort of insensitizing the overachievers, not allowing local authorities to be stripped of their ability to set local targets, you know, especially if the base standard is not fit for purpose. And I mean, what we seem to be doing at the moment is sort of incrementally you know, planning for a disaster that is yet to arrive. But, you know, it's here, climate change is here, we need to sort of address it now. I think now is the best time to invest in the most energy efficient, well insulated homes and avoid adding to our retrofit burden. Uh, Much of the homes that are being built today will require retrofitting in future. You know, technology changes, heat pumps, solar panels, home batteries, etc. Technology does change. These will be more efficient less expensive more readily replaced and uh, taken care of a a poor fabric is disruptive and very difficult to rectify 
So I think focusing on reducing demand um, will in turn reduce the burden, not only on sort of the energy use of our homes, but also the cost of infrastructure as well. So that's the upgrades that we need to sort of shift to electric heating and transport. I think currently we're just at the moment we're aiming for a percentage better than bad and uh, that needs to change. Mm. Fionn, how do you react to what Rob's just said? Oh, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's, you know, spot on to talk about um, hitting the demand first. And I think, you know, all all the points that are being made there about, um, you know, uh, going for best practice, I think are really good. I think one point I might slightly disagree on is is I think what was that law you mentioned good good use law or something about targets good hearts law yeah good hearts law yeah I've I've heard I've heard that banded about quite a lot and I'm going to actually just take take us uh, into that a bit more because I think one area where I would hold architects in particular to account is the current debate about targets versus best practice. And it's a very live debate. It's one that I'm involved in through the Architects Climate Action Network at the moment, and also with the RIBA and the ARB current consultation on architects' competence, designers' competence. Good Heart's Law says that, you know, if you, if you go for this target, then you end up with a kind of race to the bottom and everyone just designs to the lowest target and we don't get best practice. My experience over 30 years of trying to not only change practice, but also trying to change government policy, and that included being involved in the 2003 drafting of the Scottish um, Sustainability Act, which was the first act of its kind, and we did a think piece that um, contributed towards that. My experience of, of policy making is that if you don't have targets, then you get nowhere. And, you know, the, the market does not provide the solution. I know we'd love to think that the market provides the solution and we'd love to think that best practice is all we need. But in fact, without proper government intervention, government support for strict regulation, for stricter regulation, stronger regulation, we are simply not going to get there. So I'm quite impatient on this point. So at the moment, the RIBA have put out its 2030 sustainability outcomes, and I completely agree with what Rob's saying about the need to be outcomes-focused. That should be happening not just in practice, but also in the education of not just architects, but housing developers, anyone concerned with the built environment should be educated to deal with outcomes. They're not at present. Outcomes don't feature in education, only learning outcomes, which are not actually related to reality. So I think, you know, in terms of this, this good hearts law and, and targets, we need to raise our targets and we need to go beyond passive house. You know, we actually need to look at targets that don't just target energy efficiency. We need to look at water targets. We need to look at embodied energy targets. We need to look at indoor air quality targets. You know, we need to look at resource targets. All these targets are important and they need to be there because if we don't have that bottom line, it's actually the mainstream that we need to change. And unfortunately, all my experience of working with, I don't know how many different private housing developers over the, the last couple of decades, whether it's Barrett, Stuart Mill, Chris Nicholson, you know, you, you name it, they're all interested in a mainstream product. I mean, they will for sure give you, 
you know, the specialist, whoopy-doopy, passive house specials, and they'll show those off, whether it's through the BRE Innovation Park or wherever. But the reality is the mainstream product that is out there is not fit for purpose. And the way we're going to elevate the mainstream product is through regulation. And, you know, any housing developer will tell you, any house builder will tell you, the only thing they listen to out there is regulation. And there's research done on that to prove the case that, you know, if, if a house builder is given best practice, they won't follow that. What they follow is the regulation because they need to make their profit. And so all the time they're working to the profit margin. And the only thing that holds them back from a greater profit is regulation. So I'm sorry, I, you know, as far as targets go, I'm a huge fan of targets. But we need to be more ambitious. Much more ambitious, yeah. I mean, if we look at the RABA 2030s, you know, stability outcomes, which are, you know, close to, to passive house in a lot of ways. If you then look at what's happening in Scandinavia in terms of the regulatory framework in Scandinavia, we're already ahead of that in terms of reducing energy demand. So, yeah, we do, we need, you know, we need better and more regulation. Rob, I cut you off there. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I support that. Um, I guess what I've what I've seen in target setting, and I agree, we do we do need targets, but we need to make sure that they're checked and verified mm. after 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 the effect. So, I mean, SAP can be gamed. I've seen projects where large PV arrays have been added, which are never actually connected to the building. You know, so this this is happening out there. I've yeah. seen it. So we just need to be mindful that naturally developers will optimize their actions. Yeah. You know, within that <laughs> system, and if there's not if there's not proper checks in place, then 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 we're heading for well disaster really. So yeah. um, that's my only point on that really. And I think I think what we've lo- what we've lost there. Um, I think you're absolutely right. And what we've lost there is building control. So when yeah. I was in practice in the 1990s, <laughs> the person that terrified me most exactly was the A, the clerk yeah. of works, but B, the BCO, the BCO, the building control officer, wonderful yeah. person. You know, she or he would come on the site. They would walk around with you and they'd just say, well, that's not going to do. That's not, I'm sorry, that doesn't meet the reg- regulations. What happened to all that? We outsourced building control. In fact, we made we made building certification self-certification. So, in fact, you know, builder and the architect certify themselves. What a piece of nonsense. And no wonder mm. targets are gained. So, totally right without that. And, of course, the big feed into that is building performance evaluation. If we had post-occupancy evaluation and building performance evaluation as a regulated requirement, then in fact we wouldn't even necessarily need the building control officers mm. from government. You know, we could have independent certification of housing through the BPPOE process, and that's what soft landings was designed to do. That's a wonderful process that was put in place by the government for its own building stock for a few years for, for non-domestic, and then quietly dropped by the Conservative government. But that is an excellent initiative, and I would love to see soft landings applied as a systematic process for housing. Mm. And I, I think we're seeing increased interest in post-occupancy evaluation uh, techniques. Certainly we've noticed in our practice um, an increase in the number of clients inquiring and actually you know, actually asking for Reba Stage 7 
which you know wow which great. you know which is which is encouraging i mean you're gonna to have to say rob what reba stage seven is oh so, so you know it's 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 our post handover so it's everything fion's talking about it's actually monitoring the building checking that the user is actually happy with the product uh, with the building itself the way it operates and actually you know it's a hand-holding process that you know that you actually get to a point where the building is performing as near as the design intentions as you can get to and it's a great learning process as well for architects so i'm interested on the point of view of getting better buildings but also learning so uh, learning from mistakes because mistakes do happen we're you know we're all human we're not perfect sometimes we get things wrong um, but if we don't learn from those and the only way you can do that is really to revisit your building and, and see how it's performing in reality then we're not going to be able to feed that back into the design process for our our, our next building so um, I'm really encouraged to see sort of the uptake of post-occupancy and you know we're starting to develop as a practice our own um, sort of set of targets criteria and, and and really a sort of a scope of service for stage seven because really we haven't been asked for stage seven up until now and we're really having to start thinking about how would you facilitate this you know how could you work out to do sort of a light touch occupancy or a sort of a more detailed investigation what's right for the client and we're starting to learn um, how that's going to play out um, and, and hopefully more clients will take this up because I think I think move into a sort of an outcome based approval process is is, is the way forward really I, I know there's a lot of challenges in that in terms of sort of regulated versus unregulated energy etc um, but I, I think we do need to move to this outcome based um, approach sooner rather than later really Rob, you drew this analogy, didn't you, with um, cars? You know, if we if we were sold a car mm. that didn't perform as as we we were told it would, we'd take it back. Exactly. Um, I, I mean, some manufacturers of of products and some providers of services uh, are really very good at at follow up and wanting to know that the the customer, the consumer is happy with their with their purchase are, mm. are we are we going to see that in housing do you think are we going to see more more demanding clients never, never mind what might happen on the production side or regulation oh uh, well we are seeing it to be honest um, i'm, I'm uh, seeing it's it happening currently now. yeah it's happening now so we're having more inquiries on uh for post-occupancy evaluation um and 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 actually really this is so if you know, in, in relation to sort of the residential market, I guess there's sort of uh, social housing providers or RSLs. There's, there's slightly different motivations with sort of the private market. But on the social housing side, obviously a building that performs means sort of happier tenants, more comfortable tenants, tenants that can manage their energy bills a lot better, which sort of in effect then means less turnover and less hassle for the housing association. Um, and then on the market side, obviously, whilst you know developers, there may be less of an inclination for the long term sort of performance monitoring but nevertheless they they're still selling products you know they're still selling homes and 
they want their homes to be liked by um, um, uh, purchasers because you know that that helps their own sort of market status that you know buy a home off whoever and and it will fulfill your needs and perform as it should that is a selling point I, I think there's a probably a little a little bit of a lag with the market housing maybe Fion probably knows more on that but what I'm tend to find is because of the uh, the RSLs have got a sort of a vested long-term interest that that does tend to make them more interested in terms of post-occupancy monitoring and evaluation because there's there's a there's I guess there's a better link really in, in the benefits they're getting yeah, I, 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 you might disagree, Phil. That's only what I'm. It's what I'm seeing in practice. No, I mean, I, I just, I suppose, I just want to broaden that point out a little bit, Rob, because I think you're right. Generally, I'd agree that registered social landlords and and councils also yeah, councils, have yeah. a vested interest, a long term interest, and and we do see both councils and RSLs doing a lot of great work with. Um, building performance evaluation. But I, I would say, you know, the um, past 10 years that I've been working with private housing developers, I mean, what is interesting there is they have a different motivation, but they genuinely are interested also at some level in trying to improve their product. So, I mean, I worked on a £6.5 million research project with Barrett's Crest Nicholson to improve housing called AMC4 which was, you know, aimed for um, Code 4 housing at the time, mm. um, which was back in 2011. Mm. And, you know, more recently, those guys have got together again and, and they're now doing another project called, I think it's just called AIM-C, uh, and that's looking at modern methods of construction. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't I'd ha whilst I give private developers a hard time, I, you know, I wouldn't want to write them off because actually it's quite interesting. They've got quite powerful research going on in the in the bigger developers. Mm. But I was just wondering if if you don't mm. mind, David, could I just take us back to a point um, that Rob made about um, you know more people inquiring about POE? Yeah. And your question was, you know, are are we are we going to see more demand? I want to leapfrog us to something called energy sprung. Ah. And. Energy Sprong was developed in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands are usually ahead of us in the UK by quite a far margin when it comes to housing innovation. Um, so they're always a good place to look to for the future. Um, and they developed something called Energy Sprong. And the idea with Energy Sprong is, in a way, to almost bypass the need for POE and to simply build in the performance guarantee into the product. So the way that Energy Sprong works as a process is the contractor guarantees to the resident that their home will not consume any additional energy on the meter beyond what is guaranteed. And in fact, it's called zero on the meter. It's a, a bit of a, a poor translation for Dutch. It's called zero on the meter. And, you know, they're very pragmatic, the Dutch. And, you know, what they're saying is if they can create a product where they can say to the client, well, you're going to get zero on the meter because we've got we've given you so much insulation and we've given you renewable energy on the roof uh, and we've retrofitted your home to the point where you will have zero on the meter in terms of having to pay for energy from the grid. And we'll guarantee that 
providing you don't use energy excessively, and that, that is the caveat. But, you know, that, that scheme is out there. It's been exported to France. There's a scheme here in the UK in Nottingham. The only thing that's holding it back is the upfront finance, because obviously it's like the benefit in Passive House. It is a deep retrofit scheme. But, you know, for me, that was one of the most exciting developments to see in the last few years was energy sprung. And to see this new way of processing housing in such a way that literally guarantees the performance. Um, I touch on it in my book. I'm going to plug my book here. Yeah, you've got to plug your book. I've got to plug my book (laughs) because um, Rob was also touching on, you know, how their uh, Stride Trekler are, are dipping into discovering POE, which is great. My book was written for that purpose. It's called Housing Fit for Purpose. It's based on, you know, the last 20, 25 years of my own experience of doing housing post-occupancy evaluation, and also as an architect before that. And in it, I actually have a primer at the end of it that describes exactly how to start doing this stuff. And, you know, it's a, it's a little primer. It's a few pages long. Um, the rest of the book goes into a lot more depth about how architects and housing house builders um, can get going with the post-occupancy evaluation process. So I'm going to plug it. It's out there. And for anyone who wants to start doing it, it's a good place to start. It's the first guide of its kind. Um, And it was a gap in the market that needed filling. And having read your book, Fionn, I can I can recommend everyone purchase a copy because uh, <laughs> it is very useful. We now move we now move on from the commercial break. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think the energy sprung thing. I've I've looked at that. I think it's really interesting and and how it's sort of. I think it's about bringing about sort of a consciousness of consumption, and and. And I think mm. SAP at the moment, the way it kind of talks in terms of percentage of CO2 reduction, etc., I don't think it's very helpful or readily understood. No, and I think no. bringing compliance to sort of, you know, operational performance targets in, you know, in kilowatt hours. I mean, the good thing about a kilowatt hour, it's, it's the same in 2020 as it is in 2030, as it is in 2050. Whereas, you yeah. know, carbon and primary energy factors, they're dynamic. They change over time. They change daily, mm-hmm. hourly. Um, so I, I support that. And um, we are seeing actually more clients becoming aware of things like the REBA 2030 Climate Challenge, uh, the Letty Standard, uh-huh. and actually specifying these as performance targets for their buildings. And... I mean, that's where that's where it gets really interesting, doesn't it? That, you know, they're, they're actually specifying a, a energy use per meter squared per year, which can be verified at the meter. You know, they, it's quite straightforward, reasonably straightforward to verify whether it's achieving that or not. So I think that's where we need to get to. And that that's definitely where regardless of regulation, so regardless of what the target set in in regulation, building owners and we're seeing this in university clients as well are particularly interested in how their buildings are performing in reality and that's what's going to drive the change i think and then regulation as it does will catch up when it comes to regulation governments will i guess be lobbied oh god yeah 
<laughs> to do things differently. Do you get any sense, Fionn, from your perspective, that on some of these subjects, you're pushing at an open door, if I can use that kind of terminology? Are governments listening? Are they interested? Do they, do they get it? Short answer, no. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sorry to sound despondent, <laughs> but, you know, I have worked with MHCLG for a while um, on building performance with the Good Homes Alliance. Um, we had a big project with them looking at uh, three different housing schemes. I've worked with BIS for decades. Um, we had a whole building performance evaluation program, £8 million program with BEIS where we looked at a hundred different uh, developments over a period of four years. Um, it was meant to be the flagship that was going to launch BPE for everybody and uh, that was back in 2010. Here we are a decade later. What have we got? As far as the government's concerned we've got nothing. We've got no regulatory change. We've got nothing about a requirement for post-occupancy evaluation or building performance evaluation. We've got a consultation going. We've had a consultation out for SAP. But, you know, the Energy Performance Building Directive that the EU put forward decades ago, um, which demands that buildings publicly display the energy, the kilowatt hours per meter squared per year that they're actually performing to in reality. Where do we see that for homes? Nowhere. How long have we been lobbying for it? Probably 20 years. So, you know, I think government's a really tough one to crack. Government will say that it follows the industry and the, indus the housing industry will continuously lobby for the lowest common denominator, common denominator. And, you know, it does take a lot to shift government. So it, it's painstakingly slow. Having said that, I think one of the reasons, if, to be fair to the current Conservative government over the last 10 years, I think they were quite frightened by the previous Labour government's efforts to kind of leap ahead. And I, I you know, I think this is this does come back to Rob's point, actually, about where targets can be dangerous if they're not, you know, if you can't back them up and you can't enforce them and you actually haven't got the technology to do them. So there was the great white heat of technology, you know, in the millennia where Tony Blair's government reached out for, you know, setting carbon targets. And we had the code for sustainable homes that talked about zero carbon at level six and carbon positive and all that. And it was all going to be done and dusted last year. You know, every new built house by last year was going to be zero carbon. Mm. And, you know, that was meant to be a great leap forward. Unfortunately, I think they didn't work closely enough with academics. They didn't work closely enough with industry. And they didn't calibrate the process properly. Instead of going at it incrementally and working hand in hand with industry and academia, they kind of leapt at it. They had a few advisors giving them some, look, here's a good vote winner. Uh, housing's always a big deal. And it backfired, you know, and, and to the extent that the Conservatives quickly dropped it and, uh, you know, started ditching regulation like crazy. So, you know, there are lessons to be learned in terms of when you do develop standards. And bear in mind, you know, the Code for Sustainable Homes started off as a voluntary standard. There, there are real lessons there about how important it is to work much, much more closely with industry and researchers. Not something that the government's always very good at, if I'm honest. 
Rob, have you got any thoughts on that? Are we pushing at an open door in, in Wales, do you think? Yeah, I think the situation is slightly different in Wales. Obviously, governments have got multiple levers that they can pull, uh, regulation being one of those. Um, I think um, incentives, or you know, ways of incentivizing overachievers um, should be looked at. And, and the proposal by um, MHCLG for local authorities to be stripped of their sort of ability to set, you know, local targets is, 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 is really, really bad. But what I would say in Wales is I, I do think the the Welsh government is ahead of the curve. I mean, yeah, uh, for, for, a, for a, yeah. for a start, for starters, I think, you know, we have the, the wellbeing of future generations act, which is enshrined in law. I think that's a fantastic piece of leg- legislation, which all all government departments need to report against. And also we have the innovative housing program, which is the, the, the idea of that is to prime the market for low carbon homes. It's, it's put sort of, I think over 90 million pounds over the last three years for developers, private and um, RSLs to, to bid against. What that does, it gives designers and it, you know, it gives um, the industry in, in general the opportunity to test the ideas, to, to really sort of go the extra mile. You know, what does a Letty standard house look like? What does a Reba 2030 house look like? And um, it's really given you know, me the opportunity to sort of push the embodied carbon side actually as well. Mm. That, you know, mm. a, an opportunity that would not normally, you know, it's, it's lacking, you know, it's, it's sort of lagging behind um, the operational uh, regulation at the moment, but it's just as important. Um, I would argue they're equally important, especially regard to um, the the urgency of the the climate challenge. So, so I think I think I think Welsh government are pulling pulling levers. I think more needs to be done, absolutely. But yeah, I, 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 their argument is that you know embodied carbon or the calculation of is is still I guess in its in its is still emerging um, and 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 setting the standards, the targets is still. I mean, even sort of Reba acknowledged that, that the embodied carbon targets need work. So to put it into legislation at this point might be a little bit challenging, but certainly we need to look to ways to sort of prime and, and encourage people to do it. But Rob, can I, can I just, I, I need to challenge that because, you know, the government in the past used to say, well, energy efficiency, you know, it still needs work doing on it. We don't understand it. You know, the standards aren't set properly. There are problems. And this kind of backlogging is often used to stop a new idea coming into being. So let me give you some facts about embodied energy standards. The ISO embodied energy standard has been established for several years now work developed by Alistair Moncaster and others. We have numerous different embodied energy standards that the governments can decide to choose from if they want to. We have EPD products. We have the EU who have you know, produced um, environmental product declarations for, for, for years now. To be honest, the levers are all there. The fear is the first person, you know, it's I will if you will kind of thing. Someone's got to make the move in government because actually, you know, it's not in its infancy. I did my first embodied energy calculation on retrofit housing in Scotland in 1992. 
So, you know, when, when, when was that? You know, that was a long time ago. So, you know, this idea that somehow embodied energy is all new and all the rest of it, we just need to get on with it. But we're, I do think we're at a hiatus here, which is where we have enough to be able to get on with embodied energy. But no one is willing to make the first move in the UK. You know, everyone is worried. Well, I'm, I, I, I will come back on that because mm. um, I, I think as, as an industry, embodied carbon hasn't been the focus. So, so if you were to suddenly introduce embodied carbon targets, you know, next month, then that means there's a tremendous amount of upskilling that the industry designers as a whole need to go through. there's hundreds and hundreds through. of EPDs. I, can, can, I just, can I just finish? <laughs> yeah, sure. Can I just finish, Fia? Yeah, go for it. We at Strider Glown have invested in a piece of software called uh, One Click LCA. I've done embodied carbon calculations now on a number of buildings it's basically a tool which links to our 3D BIM models. It's a very good tool. And what it does, it, it opens the door to designers and architects to do embodied carbon calculation. It's, it's very nuanced. We, we did a number of studies on some of the innovative housing program projects. And it's surprising um, sort of the disparities you can get in calculation. This is talking about carbon, embodied carbon, not embodied energy, because I, I was talking about embodied energy. And I think this is also really interesting. Your point about how carbon changes every day. I mean, something I would say here is, I mean, I, I, I teach, you know, low impact materials. I teach LCA and all the rest of it at university. I also research it. One thing I would say is I do regret a move away from embodied energy towards embodied carbon for the very reasons that you say we should be looking at um, energy efficiency rather than carbon efficiency because that's actually something you can measure at the meter so actually it's a lot yep. easier to calculate embodied energy than embodied carbon and you know the work we were doing in the 90s was embodied energy and recently you know i've been in dialogue with the researchers down in bath who developed the open source ice um you know the the um bath index for embodied originally embodied energy that's now moved over to carbon the reason that all the embodied stuff has moved over to carbon is because the agenda is carbon. And that's fine. But in all honesty, what we should be starting with is the embodied energy. And, you know, by all means, we can add in yeah. the carbon after that. But, you know, the, the nuancing is far is far more difficult with the carbon. Um, so, you know, I'd say let's start with embodied energy. And there there are lots of tools out there already. Um, you know, it does seem a shame that a shame that we keep reinventing them. You know, when when there are existing tools, I've, I've had the same conversation with Tim Martell about the uh, passive house PH ribbon. We need to get started. We could nuance this in another way. I mean, I think you and I would probably both agree, Rob, that one of the most difficult areas to calculate with embodied energy or carbon in materials is actually the service element. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's quite easy to calculate the uh, concrete or the timber or, or the kind of structural stuff is the easy stuff. Well, let's start with that, because yeah. to be honest, in all my research, the embodied carbon energy in the services part of homes is probably only around 10, 15 percent. You know, the bulk of the embodied energy and carbon is, is elsewhere. So we could start by saying, let's start with embodied energy of the structure of homes. 
let's dip our toe in. Yep, we can we can do that. I mean, that could be a starting point for regulation. It could be a start. Yeah. I think fundamentally we need to we need to measure first, yes. don't we? So yes. we need to get to a point where we're understanding. You know, call it embodied energy, embodied carbon. The tool we use reports both. Um, obviously, the industry is going towards embodied carbon. Yeah. With you know, we're using the methodology set out in the risks whole life assessment. Mm-hmm. And that is that is very much sort of the embodied carbon approach on services. I think you'd be surprised um, from the work we've done. Services are very important and and can account for up to sort of thirty to forty percent. Wow, that's a lot of. Well, yes. I suppose I'd say for housing, my question there would be: Is there too much services in there? That would be my question. Potentially, on that yeah, that's yeah. High. But I, th- I wow. think I think. I think I think the question is balance, isn't it? So it, mm-hmm. so we only really know if it's worth putting that much servicing in if we're looking at the whole life carbon approach yeah. Yeah. that we're balancing our embodied with our operational. I, th- I think to look at either operational energy or embodied carbon in isolation oh, is a hopeless. mistake. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean that's my point about are, are we ready yet as an industry? I think personally on the ground. You know, we, you know, we, we're in a practice which is emb- embracing this route. I, I think we're a little, a little far off actually embedding that into regulation at this point in time. I think more upskilling is needed, and sort of more understanding. I mean, there's LCA practitioners out there, which, um, you know, have gone, you know, they've done university degrees on LCA. We need to be careful here, Rob, because LCA is not embodied energy or embodied carbon. I mean, that that's a much broader topic, LCA. Yep. Life cycle True. analysis that will include all the other stuff. So, but you know, coming coming back to your point about are we ready? Let's think about air tightness testing. So, when we brought in the regulation for air tightness testing, you'll remember this probably. The first year it was run, the whole system fell over. You know, all the air tightness testing that was being done was rubbish. But because we had a bit of building control on top of it, within a year, uh, air tightness testing processes were, were vastly improved. So, you know, it, it is possible sometimes to actually use regulation to drive things, particularly if, you know, there is already best practice out there. Yeah. So my worry about, I suppose, I'm just so impatient. You know, my worry is that if we say we're not ready, we can't get started, someone's got to make a move on this stuff because we are ready. We have got a lot of know-how. The catastrophic biodiversity decline. Can we really sit here and say we're in 2020 and we know that we have to get housing down before, you know, we have to get all this stuff sorted before 2030. Can we really sit here and say we can't put this stuff into regulation yet? I think we're both agreeing that we need to address it. And I think we both need to report it. It's just how quickly. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about the role of the architect and how that might change going forward. Because because you're both architects and you you will have experienced um, changes in the time that you've been practicing architects and remembering how how your training and learning took place what what's the role of the architect going to be going into the future Fionn? well i was going to say i think that's one for rob actually i'll, I'll come back on education yeah um it's um i'd say the last couple of years have been a challenge i mean you should see my cpd record for the last couple of years <laughs> it's um it's been quite crazy so i mean i guess it started for me in the beginning of 2019 i was in cardiff city center 
um, I stumbled across the um, climate protest actually, which was it was April um, in 2019. You know, it was, it was about the same time Greta Thunberg was doing the climate strikes, etc. And and you know what struck me, I was I was in this protest, kind of found myself in there, and it, and it wasn't the um you know the tree hugging hippies in there it wasn't your swampies it was normal people it was kind of like families with children and I, I remember being in that thinking that was my wake-up call and I think every professional will have their own wake-up call and you know from that point I decided right I'm going to upskill myself I'm I'm going to train as a passive house consultant I I felt I felt like my education in terms of fundamental building physics was lacking and and I felt that as as a professional I needed to upskill myself in building physics so to do that I'd selected the passive house course I felt it was the most rigorous option out there I could select then I learned about embodied carbon. I, you know, yeah. I managed to convince our practice to invest in this, um, in this tool. And there, and there my journey began, really. I've been signing up to every single online CPD I can do over lockdown, upskilling myself in terms of building performance, um, healthy buildings, air quality, ventilation. I, I think um, for me, it's a personal um journey really but you know i feel a fundamental responsibility as an architect and to be honest just as a citizen um to actually do do the most i can or the best i can yeah. uh, in any given project and you know not all clients will be you know have those drivers but i feel like if i've got the knowledge behind me i can sort of convince and um persuade kind of from the inside to make our buildings better and i've been very fortunate in the projects that i've worked on that's that's enabled me to sort of push the boundaries in terms of you know going for sort of low carbon materials and calculating embodied energy and and operational um, I've been really fortunate in a sense that I've had the opportunity to do that. But I think it's been a steep learning curve over the last few years. I wouldn't ever proclaim to be an expert because I think everyone is always um, learning. And I think as architects, we can sometimes be guilty of working in silos too. And I think without a doubt, we need to work much more closely with our engineers, both structural, m and &E, and, yeah. and to really share knowledge, I mean, support each other through this process. Um, I mean, we're all, we're all sort of up in the process of upskilling ourselves to, to meet this challenge. And I think the more we can share knowledge and support each other through that, the better. Fionn, are you going to give us an educator's yeah. perspective? Well, yeah, but no, but I think, well, I think actually Rob's just given us the educator's perspective, which is learn, learn, learn. And, you know, it's fantastic to hear. You know, I think, you know, Strata Treadwell uh, is definitely a learning, what I'd call a learning practice. And, you know, all architecture practices should be learning practices, but actually it's surprising how many practices aren't always learning, uh, in my experience when I've worked with them. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to hear that. I think for me, I would have to come back to education as an educator. So I think one of the reasons it's such a steep learning curve for the current generation of architects is that they haven't been educated to do this. You know, they haven't been educated to um, 
understand the building physics. You know, that the building physics is missing from architectural education. Um, I can remember when I was trained at Sheffield in the 1980s, I was tra trained by fantastic people, fantastic building physicists. Um, Professor Peter Page, who sort of did leading work on, on solar energy. Uh, and then I was also tutored by amazing tutors, Robert and Brenda Vale, um, you know, who were one of the, the, the sort of pioneering couples who really took on um, ecological building design. I was very, very lucky. But when I look today at what our universities are teaching, what our schools of architecture are teaching as an, as an external examiner, um, apart from a handful of schools, uh, and I'm not going to name names here, but, you know, apart from a handful of schools, so many schools of architecture have got rid of lots of teaching related to building physics. You know, it's almost and almost in a way it's something that's that's paralleled in the industry itself, where architecture has sort of divested itself of its engineering side. And, you know, we, if we're not careful, we're going to rapidly deteriorate as a profession into house decorators. Um, you know, we, we, we do need to claim back that credibility. And, you know, practices like Stride Treadful and others are doing that. But, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a uphill battle because we've given so much away. And if I, if I was to just talk about sort of five key elephants in the room in architectural education, so the first one I've already mentioned is the lack of building physics. The second one is one that's been threading through the conversation today, which is the lack of evidenced outcomes in architectural education. And, and lots of people say, oh, well, we can't possibly ask our students to prove their buildings perform. Well, actually, you can. Um, and it's not just in terms of asking them to do very simple simulation work. Um, you can actually build in POE as part of your program where students go to look at a retrofit. Um, they look at the POE for that retrofit. They do their own interventions. They compare the simulation to the POE of that retrofit. It's all in my book, examples of how to do this. Um, so I think we can be a lot more evidence-based in, in architectural education. Um, Rob touched on personal values, the citizens' values. So the other thing that's missing, and certainly something we tried to introduce in Sheffield through our resilience um, program, is personal values in students that are deeply related to um, valuing the environment. Uh, that needs to be re regrouped. Um, but probably, you know, one of the biggest elephants in the living room is retrofit, and the idea that architecture is all about new builds. And, you know, I've been in education for over 30 years now, and retrofit has always been the Cinderella. And actually, it's one of the most difficult things to do well, and it can involve fantastic space making and place making. But for some reason, it is just not prioritised in architectural education. And yet, when we go out into the real world, you know, we know that we're only dealing with 1% of the housing stock as new build. The rest is all about retrofit. So, you know, we've got some really big challenges in education at the moment, and we need to rapidly upskill tutors in education so that we deliver architects who can address all these issues. Are you both um, optimistic about the future? Might seem a daft question. Rob? Yeah, I am, actually. A lot of my colleagues have you know, become interested in the projects I'm working on and they now want to upskill themselves as well. And, and I've certainly seen 
in our younger staff, in you know our recent sort of graduates that we've taken on, you know they've got a completely different view on this. I mean, this is their future, isn't it? This is this is this is their, you yeah. know. So so it's fundamentally different. You know, it's a matter of life and death for them almost. So, um, well, it is literally. Yeah, it is literally. Yeah. So so I I'm you know it will change. I I'm I'm absolutely convinced of it. We just need to move fast. Oh, a, a, a degree of impatience. Well, it must be yeah. rubbing off. Them, I, I guess clearly. going back to the, I just slightly <laughs> going back to the embodied carbon oh. point. I mean, when when we set the regulation, there's so many kind of potential unintended consequences, and 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 also regulations need to talk to each other as well. So you know, at the same, you know, at the same, at the same point, we've got you know, the change to part B coming through, which would, which effectively eliminate the potential for us to build in, in timber frame as a superstructure over, what, three to four storeys, which oh, is no. absolutely oh, crazy. Yeah. So regulation needs to be joined up on this. Yeah, it is. I am optimistic. I am definitely optimistic. And I think there's never been so much impetus um, on this. And I think even with, you know, COVID and the lockdown, I'm still seeing, you know, I, I was I was worrying that sort of clients, you know, might sort of take take the foot off the gas in terms of you know tackling you know climate emergency. But that's not been the case. I, I think all, all the, the a lot of the projects that have come through that we're we're starting to look at as well have very much got um, sustainability and a responsible attitude to. Um, uh, reducing impacts of buildings at the forefront of their briefs and their agendas. That's good to hear. I mean, that's what we're finding anyway. It might just be, you know, the <laughs> projects that we tend to work on. Yeah. I, I, get, well, I was going to say, I mean, I do think, I, I do think you're, you're in a slight bubble there because I think you're working be. with best practice. I mean, what I see, I mean, I would say my position is one of schizophrenia. So when I go to bed at night, I feel relatively hopeless um, but when I wake up each morning, I'm full of hope. Um, the reason I, I tend to feel a bit hopeless at times is when I've travelled and I've, you know, for example, you know, recently I was travelling and I was just looking out of the window and noticing um, noddy boxes sprouting all over the countryside and just knowing that these are business as usual noddy boxes that will be not at all highly energy efficient and um, they're there you know so that that is my despair is that I think despite the best practice happening with a small amount of um, architecture and housing um, the vast majority of housing is still um, I'm going to be brutal here rubbish not fit for purpose title of my book um, but you know I do wake up with hope for the very reasons that Rob's saying which is I think the next generation's already there by and large um, I think our generation are feeling guilty, and I think we are trying to do things about it. Um, so, I, you know, I, I have a, a mixture of, of, of sort of delight at seeing the innovation that's around, seeing how COVID has sharpened people's minds and has sharpened innovation, if anything. It's certainly, you know, it's producing a lot more creativity in architecture than I've seen for a while. But at the same time, you know, COVID is also sharpening the divides. You know, and we're seeing the divide between the house and the house knots, um, between the bread and butter housing that continues as usual and the wonderful new housing that could be developed but just isn't being mainstreamed quickly enough. 
So I think I'm, I'm with Rob on, on the impatience factor of we need to do it a bit more quickly. And I swerve between hope and despair. <laughs> yeah. Would we would we be having a very different conversation in 10 years' time, do you think? God forbid, if we were round the table, metaphorically, again. Can you see things changing? The climate emergency's got to make a difference, hasn't it? I'm not sure whether we'll be here in 10 years' time. And I don't mean oh, be crikey. here in the terms... I, I don't mean in terms of mass extinction, but I'm not sure whether we'll be here in terms of whether we'll actually have the grid connection to be able to have this kind of call. You know, that's my worry, is that we're not being resilient enough we're not we're not future proofing enough at the moment Mm. um across the country you know to deal with the landslides to deal with um all the infrastructure resilience that we need um so i think you know we could be looking at a very different world in 10 years time where things are a lot more localized um the resilience is a lot more local that might take us slightly backwards culturally um it could take us forwards if we can keep the connect but I do worry, you know, I think we are going to see drastic, exponential weather changes in the next 10 years. I mean, really, really exponential. We're not just going to see London as the Med. You know, we're going to see London moving towards the Sahara because we're not looking at 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, you know, by 2080. You know, we're looking at potential, I think, with a, with exponential trigger points, we could be looking at, at far greater temperature increases, far more quickly. But I think we'll still be here. We'll just be here in a different way. We'll we'll all be in floating houses. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, Rob's, Rob's innovation will, will be amazing and we will be living in different spaces. Yeah. I, I think if you want to feel depressed about uh, the climate emergency, there's a book, The Uninhabitable Earth by David God. Wallace Wells. <laughs> Haven't read that one. <laughs> yeah, um, I read that one. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then oh, I switched. God. I don't think I could. So, so read that. But then after it, I would encourage you to read Greta uh-huh. Thunberg. No one is too small to make a difference. That's uh, that's oh, I've an read ec- that. I've read that's that. an that's excellent read. kind of yeah. counteract to yeah. it. So um, antidote. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I I don't like to dwell too much on on what will be in ten years time. Right. I'm I'm focused on the here and now and on what we can change right now. So yeah, um, that's the way I like yeah. to see it. That's brilliant. Are there any final thoughts that each of you want to contribute? Anything you really wanted to say and I haven't given you a chance to, uh, Fionn? Well, the one thing I would want to say is about the um, Architect Registration Board competencies um, consultation that's happening at the moment, which, you know, I think is incredibly important because, you know, this is the profession being asked to account for itself. And it's, it's a huge opportunity, you know, for us to say to our regulator, look, we do need regulating and, you know, we do need these competencies evidencing. My worry is that the way that things are going with the Royal Institute of British Architects, looking at education and and lifelong learning, is that I'm really, really fearful that we're once again going to end up in a situation where graduates that come out of schools of architecture still don't have evidence-based competencies and that that is left to what we call the traditional part three, which is the period when when graduates carry on training as architects beyond what they've learned in, in the schools of architecture. So I would really urge... If any any architects are listening, please, please, or, or any residents or anybody at all, if you can get involved with the ARB um, consultation, please ask them to ensure that the 
educational establishments produce graduates that have deliverable, you know, evidence-based um, competencies in producing zero carbon design. Rob, did you have any any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I just over the last year or so, the importance of kind of really working more closely with you know supply chains and um, manufacturers, especially timber frame manufacturers. So, you know, I think we need to move the idea to sort of grow in our own construction materials, be that sort of timber frame, wood fibre. And I love working with timber and other sort of bio-based materials. You know, they're healthy, renewable. They've got small embodied energy impact. But I think, you know, if we if, if architects could be willing to work a lot more closely um, with with the experts in sort of timber and wood and um, there's mutual benefit to be had there. And it's certainly um, sort of brought my knowledge on over the last year or so. And I think it's benefited, my point of view has sort of benefited the timber frame manufacturers as well. Because, you know, this is going to be a, a growing area. It's going to be a growing industry, hopefully in Wales. Obviously, Wood Knowledge Wales strongly supporting that. And and, and I hope to see that. Thank you, I hope to see that. Um, sort of not only sort of growing wows but but also in england as well i know scotland's sort of ahead of the curve in terms of timber frame and um yeah I'd, as an architect it's actually been quite enjoyable to sort of go into um you know a, a timber factory a timber frame factory see the materials being put together how it's made and um yeah i think that that's going to bring benefits for for everyone Brilliant. Listen, thanks both of you for all of your time. Thanks very much, David. And thanks, Rob. Great, you know, good conversation. I enjoyed that. I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah. And your final points about the whole wood thing, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I'd love to see more wood stuff. Um, so, you know, I'll, 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 I'll keep an eye on what you guys are up to. Yeah, you need to get your students to go to some timber frame factories. That would be brilliant. I do. It's interesting you should say that. I, I actually take my students, what well, I used to before COVID, take them to Austria to the Brettstapel factories. That's ideal. Which is glueless timber. So, yeah, I do. I, because you're right. I mean, going to a timber factory is just a joy. It is. Um, yeah. yeah, so... It's, it's, and I'm so it's really heartening for me to hear you as an architect, you know, saying, right, let's get into the factories. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> we do. We just, yeah, it needs to be joined up, doesn't it? Excellent. Hey, thank you. I've got the task of editing and producing this now, oh, which luck, ought to though, be easy because <laughs> like I suspected, it was a question of winding you up and letting you both go. <laughs> Thanks both very much. Thanks very much. Bye. What a lovely conversation. We could have gone on. In fact, we probably would have carried on if we'd had more time. I'm grateful to Fionn and Rob for making time in their busy schedules and for reminding me that you never stop learning. We've known we need to be doing something to deal with the performance gap in housing for a few decades now, but the climate emergency makes it even more urgent. Thanks for listening.